0: The defeat of Donald Trump may have been a good day for constitutional democracy, yet questions about the resilience and value of our democratic systems have not gone away. The power of China, the disruptiveness of Putin's Russia are major external threats, while even the defenders of democracy wonder whether our system can tackle long-term challenges, most obviously the worsening catastrophe of climate change. For many, including us at the RSA, the answer isn't simply to defend democracy, but to reform it, to renew it. In this edition of Bridges to the Future, I'll be talking to two people at the forefront of domestic and international debate about democratic renewal.
1: You're listening to the podcast that puts leading thinkers on the spot by asking for one big idea to help shape our new era. This is Bridges to the Future with Matthew Taylor, brought to you by the RSA.
0: So I'm delighted to be joined by Graham Smith, the chair of the Foundation for Democracy and Sustainable Development and author of a new book called Can Democracy Safeguard the Future? and Claudia Schwalitz, who leads the international programme on innovative citizenship participation at the global think tank OECD. Uh, welcome to you both. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Matthew.
0: Graham, can we start with the kind of core argument of your book, which is it's a focus on the long term. So the book starts out arguing very strongly that our existing democratic systems don't seem to be very good at long term governance. Tell us what the evidence is for that and why you think that's the case. So I think we've got lots of issues like
2: pensions, health and social care, infrastructure, Issues like climate change that you mentioned at the head of the programme, biodiversity and currently, obviously, pandemics and, and existential questions around emerging technologies where democracies, I think, have got a patchy record in terms of their capacity to think long term, their capacity to give due regard to the interests of future generations. And I think there's a number of reasons why that's the case. And it's to do with the sort of design of democratic institutions and the kind of dynamics that are in play. In the book, I kind of unpack four sort of drivers here. And one is that simply future generations aren't present. And we know that when people aren't present in decisions that are made that are going to affect their interests, those interests aren't taken into account or aren't given due weight. The second is electoral cycles. You know, we will operate on four to five year terms, and that tends to generate a sort of party dynamic of thinking about the next election and not necessarily thinking long term and a lack of confidence amongst the electorate that long term promises will be kept. And then there's a general problem about the sort of resistance from incumbent interests. Those sort of interests who are very well placed in the current system tend to resist resist change, resist sort of movement towards long-term policy. And then, of course, you know, there's dynamics of the broader capitalist system, like short-term investment cycles, sort of the speed of the news cycle, sort of the pressure to consume. And all of those kind of dynamics create what has been referred to as sort of a democratic myopia within democratic systems. Now, this isn't to say that democracies can't deal with long-term issues, and that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that the structure of the institutions tends towards a prioritisation of short-term interests.
0: Does that vary depending on the electoral system and the period of time? So, for example, when we had a much more consensual politics, the so-called kind of butzcalite era of the 50s, for example, or in European countries where, as a result of proportional representation, they tend to have coalition governments. In those contexts, are governments better at long-term, and is the particular problem when you've got a kind of polarized winner-takes-all system?
2: So I think there are differences between systems and academics have tried to tease some of that out. And there is evidence, for example, there's a really interesting study that shows that pension policy has been developed better in more consensual systems. But I think there is a generic problem within democracies that they tend not to be able to deal with long term issues well. But within that, Some systems are slightly better than others, but I want to make the claim that there's a generic problem here, and it isn't simply a matter of changing electoral systems. It isn't a matter of electoral tinkering, if you like, even though we can see these differences. And we've got to be clear, and I make that point in the book, that democracies do definitely outperform autocracies when when it comes to long-term issues. And there are differences amongst democracies. Still, democracies could be performing better. And there are characteristics of the democratic institutions that we have that explain why They aren't so good at protecting the interests of future generations.
0: And Claudia, you work with a network of people involved in democratic innovation and renewal all around the world. How often is the argument made in these terms, the terms that Graham's making them, of the need for innovation to address this kind of long-term deficit with traditional representative democracy?
1: Yeah, that's right, Matthew. And well, I suppose for openness as well, both you and and Graham are part of this network that I coordinate at the OECD, looking at innovative citizen participation and thinking about the future of democracy a lot more broadly. I would say the way that Graham has framed the problem very much aligns with the way that we see things in the sense that the institutions that we have today, they date largely from, from the 19th century and have been modified in very few ways since then, even though society has changed in many ways. And even though now I think we're more aware than ever of some of those inherent design impacts that come from that, so leading to short termism, leading to thinking about re election, prioritizing perhaps inputs from interest groups so it's not about getting rid of democracy it's not about you know getting rid of elections either but it's really about thinking about how we could reinvigorate and and restructure reimagine some of the existing democratic institutions to get over some of these challenges and I really like the quote that Graham includes at the end of that introductory chapter actually by John Dewey who argues that the cure for the ailments of democracy is more democracy.
0: And in case anybody thinks that this is just a kind of simplistic attack upon politicians and the motivations of politicians. I think, Claudia, one of the things that's worth recognizing is that it's often elected politicians, elected through a kind of traditional representative system, whether it's a national level or a local level, who are themselves the sponsors of methods like deliberative democracy, almost as if they recognize they need to create a different method of accountability in order to balance the kind of short-termism of the day-to-day political world.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't want to make politicians sound like any sort of villain here. It's more about recognising just the system within which they operate has certain incentives that are designed into it. And definitely there have been many politicians and, well, civil servants also in some cases who have been initiating more innovative democratic processes like citizens' assemblies to try and bring citizens closer into the decision-making processes. Although I think that Graham also highlights a really good point in his book that made me think a little bit about I think part of the problem sometimes of why we don't always see a follow-up of those recommendations coming from citizens being implemented or not to a large extent anyways is that they get passed back into these institutions that have these structural short-term incentives into them which does actually require us to have a, a bigger more fundamental rethink about how our institutions function today.
2: I mean, if I can jump in, Matthew, a classic example here is in both Hungary and Israel, they created offices for future generations.
0: So I wanted to come to that, Graeme. So absolutely, there are kind of two, in your book, there are two ideas which in the end you think have got the greatest potential, and also you're interested in the interaction of those two ideas. So the first is this notion of some kind of independent office for the long term, which publicly holds governments to account for these longer term challenges. And the second is forms of citizen engagement like deliberative democracy. So let's look at them in turn. And I'm really keen, as you were about to do, Graham, to look at some of the specific examples. In fact, we have had on this podcast a few months ago, Jane Davidson, who was one of the authors of the Welsh commitment to future generations. So tell us about what's happened in relation to these offices for the long term, because it's a mixed picture, isn't it, Graeme, in terms of how much impact they've had?
2: Yeah, it's a very mixed picture. And one thing we've got to remember is these are very new and novel innovations themselves. So, you know, we're in the foothills of kind of understanding how these, these things are going to work. But the two leaders in this area were Israel and Hungary, who both established commissioners. The commissioner in Israel had the power to delay legislation by requesting further information. The commissioner in Hungary was able to act as an ombudsman and to take cases to court of public action where it seemed to go against the constitutional protection of future generations. And what we found in both of these cases is that You know, they were established by politicians who recognised that there was a dysfunction in the system, that they recognised that they needed a body to, if you like, remind them to take the long term into account. But their experience of working with that body was one that was obviously restricting them. And in response to that restriction in Israel, they abandoned after one parliamentary term, they abandoned the commissioner. um, That position no longer exists. In Hungary, they weakened it. So there's a real challenge there that politicians recognise. And as you say, they recognise there is an issue here. They recognise the sort of systemic constraints that are placed on them, try to create an institution that will restrict them. And when they are restricted, become unhappy with that situation. So we've got this kind of irony here. And one of the problems, I think, for these institutions is that they don't have a constituency, like an environmental body, a governmental environmental body has kind of environmental constituency. A farmer's body, again, has a farming constituency, but future generations, as I've said, simply don't exist. So the the constituency, the main constituency for whom that body is fighting can't support them clearly you know it's just just impossible so that's been a real challenge now we have seen i think an emerging institution a successful institution in wales the commission there which as you say jane helped author and that does seem to be getting to affect some cultural change within wales but it wasn't given the powers that the Hungarian and the Israeli commissioners were given. Now, it may have been that that was by design because they saw what had happened in those two countries and decided actually that commissioner's role would be much more, you know, a role of sort of trying to develop good practice of sort of working with public authorities to try and change the way they do things, making public pronouncements and being a sort of, you know, kind of trying to act in a more sympathetic way than sort of delaying action or or court action. But, you know... It doesn't have the bite that those earlier institutions had, but it is certainly, from my colleagues who live and work in Wales, suggest it is beginning to see some sort of cultural change amongst public authorities in Wales. So I think there is some promise here. It's early days, but I really think there's a legitimacy problem in terms of ensuring that this new institution is defended against, surprisingly, the short-term interests of politics.
0: So I want to get into this question of how resilient these bodies can ever be when ultimately the same politicians who set them up can then turn against them if they say inconvenient things. But Claudia, first, what's your view of this kind of idea of independent offices for the long term or whatever they might be, bodies that have the mandate to hold governments to account slightly more for these long term issues? Is that something which you think has promise?
1: Yeah, I think it's a really interesting idea. And I have to admit that it's not an area in which I have a huge amount of expertise I learned a lot actually from reading Graham's book about it so if I could maybe give Graham a plug (laughs) and recommend people to to have a look into it because it is really interesting and I think Graham outlined some of the challenges with them but I do think that they they hold a, a unique promise in the sense of asking people to put themselves in the shoes of future generations I think one thing that I found maybe slightly missing and I wonder what Graham would think about it now is that I think that these institutions have a very human-centric approach to them as well in terms of thinking of our future generations. But I think there's also a need for institutions to maybe have proxies for people who think about you know the future of the planet or the future of nature. I know that this seems to be a, an emerging debate in certain circles about you know giving nature rights and how do we actually think about that in a way which is forward looking that we're not doing at the moment
0: so i want to come to deliberative democracy in a moment claudia and i want to start with you to ask you to give us some examples from around the world but let's focus on this question of of the resilience of anything which is created and can be dismantled by the politicians who are involved in the system which the institution was created in a sense to be a bulwark against. So this is the kind of the contradiction here. Now, Graham, the only way that you can ever get round that, and even that is limited, is to try to embed these institutions within the constitution. And obviously, various constitutions around the world, one thinks particularly of the American constitution, are embedded in a way which makes it quite difficult for those, once they're in the constitution, for them to be removed. So is it is it in the end that we're going to need, in those countries which have a constitution, of course we speak in the, in the UK which doesn't have a written constitution, is it that we're going to need these bodies to be embedded in constitutions if they are going to have any resilience? So I think that is one strategy. I think it's a challenging strategy,
2: and it would certainly be one that is worth following, as you say, in those countries that have constitutions. I also think there is another way which these bodies can become resilient. And we can think about a whole host of independent bodies that do restrict governments and politicians room for manoeuvre, which manage to survive. And one of the reasons they tend to survive is because they have a strong constituency within the population who, if you like, provide bulwark for them in terms of their legitimacy. And I think this is, as I've said, a particular challenge for offices for future generations where that constituency doesn't as of yet exist. So my argument in the book is that, and I think actually in Wales we get some sense of what this might look like, is that these sorts of organisations would do well to engage in a much more participatory form of politics and actually trying to build public support for what they're doing. And this is certainly what has happened in Wales, where the Welsh Act that instituted the commissioner Itself was based on a participatory process. And then the commission has been very keen in its work to engage with the public. In fact, it's actually part of the act, it's a requirement to engage in public participation. And in that way, drawing people into these sorts of questions about what is it as a society we should be doing for future generations? What is it as a society we need to be doing in terms of considering the long term? And for me, that is one way of kind of, if you like, constructing a public around. The moment is lacking around future generations. So I think we have seen this with other commissioners where they've taken a much more public orientated face, but not just in terms of public communication, but actually in terms of public participation. And that's where I think we can link this kind of development of these independent offices with this emerging
0: movement around deliberative democracy. So, Claudia, I'm going to turn to you on deliberative democracy. And all three of us are great fans of deliberative democracy and have been banging on about it for years. But some of our listeners may not be so au fait. So, so, Claudia, tell us what deliberative democracy is, its key characteristics. But also give us some examples, because I think another thing is that although there have been examples in the UK, and we've seen particularly select committees coming together to host really interesting citizens' assemblies around the funding of social care and more recently around climate change. Still in the UK, it's a relatively undeveloped area of work in comparison to other countries, which have really moved quite a long way to making deliberation an inherent part of how they do quite a lot of their politics. So tell us what it is and give us some examples of, of where it's worked.
1: Yeah, I thank you. Thanks, Matthew. This is definitely a topic that I, well, and you and Graham have all been working on for, for many years, but for those who are a bit less familiar with the topic, deliberative democracy has a few key characteristics which are quite distinct, although I would say also complementary to a participatory and, and representative democracy. So when we're talking about deliberative democracy, and I think here in this context what we're going to be referring to are things like citizens' assemblies, for instance, what characterise these sorts of democratic processes is that at the heart of them sits a relatively small but broad broadly representative group of society. So there's usually a, a particular process, something called a civic lottery, that tries to, to really reach out to, to as many people as possible in the first instance on a, on a random basis, inviting them into the room, but then choosing a smaller selection of them in a way to ensure that at the end of the day, the, the people who are in that room are kind of a microcosm of the wider population to ensure that representativeness, but also that diversity, which we know that we don't always get with processes that invite anybody to, to participate in the first place. So there's a small group and that's to ensure that there can be high quality deliberation and deliberation really entails, you know, being able to, to weigh evidence, to consider different perspectives. I think a key characteristic of it is really this explicit aim of trying to, to identify where we have some common ground. So there's a, a kind of decision-making element to it as well, which is distinct from, from a dialogue, which is more about bringing people together to discuss issues, but not necessarily with any aim of trying to find consensus. Whereas That's really the the aim of deliberation. Where on this complex issue can we find some common ground? So I guess turning over to some examples to make all of that maybe sound a bit less abstract. I think we have seen quite a bit happening in the UK recently, but perhaps I'll, I'll bring in a few other international examples. I mean, one of the ones that maybe is best known to give people a bit of a picture to begin with is the, is the Irish Citizens Assembly, which between 2016 to 2018 had brought together 100 randomly selected people, broadly representative of Irish society, to come up with recommendations for five different big issues. Faced Irish Society. One of them was about whether the constitution should be amended in regards to abortion to make it legal. So the Citizens Assembly of 100 people heard from a huge amount of experts, but also then advocacy groups. And after deliberating for six months, gave a recommendation to the Special Parliamentary Committee on the topic that there should be a referendum to amend the constitution on this issue. But they also provided concrete recommendations for how the legislation should change were the Irish public to vote for a constitutional change. So people went into that referendum also with a much broader set of of knowledge about what change would actually entail in that instance. But we're also seeing a move to thinking about how these processes can not just be these one-off or ad hoc instances that are initiated really on the basis of political will, but something that can become a little bit more embedded into the system. And I would say that There's been quite a lot of energy in Belgium, in particular, at all levels of government. So in the Brussels regional parliament, they've established deliberative committees where a randomly selected group of 45 citizens from across Brussels region work with 15 MPs to come up with recommendations on a specific issue that gets put to them. And this model is now being replicated at other levels of government in Belgium. There's also the German-speaking community of Belgium called Belgen, where actually Brown was also involved in this process of designing this new democratic addition to their existing parliamentary system but in essence the the parliament there in in 2019 had voted unanimously to establish a new institution called the Citizens Council which is a randomly selected group of 24 citizens from this region who have an agenda setting role of deciding what should be the two or three issues every year that get put to citizens panels and those citizens panels recommendations then need To be debated by the parliament, so you see that there can be really a strong link between deliberative democracy and representative democracy as well.
0: There's two things, Claudia, I want to really draw out from what you've said, but also from your broader work, which is, you know, in the world of policy, we have to try to distinguish between cycles and trends. And I think the evidence is overwhelming now that the move to deliberation is not a cycle, just a fashion it is a trend it is growing it has been growing for some time and you know you're regularly reporting from the OECD on this kind of Tide really, this tide of deliberation around the world, obviously not extending to non democratic regimes. So, that's I think you know very heartening that it, it seems to have this impulse behind it. But then also to reinforce your other point, which is that this is not an attempt to usurp representative democracy, it's an attempt to enhance it. And one of the things that I have spent a lot of my time doing is explaining to politicians, many of whom are kind of worryingly. Ignorant of deliberative democracy, or instinctively hostile to it, that is actually a way of making it easier for them to be good representatives. It's not about detracting from them. Now, Graham, I want to turn to you with a kind of paradox here, or, or maybe it's a problem, which is that one of the reasons that we advocate deliberation, or one of the grounds that we use, is to say that it is a process that is not controlled, where a representative group of citizens hear a variety of evidence and reach conclusions themselves. So this is not an attempt to reach a particular outcome. It's a different way, and in many ways, a better way of trying to guide decision-making. However, I think what you want to argue in the book, Graham, implicitly at least, is that deliberative fora are better at long-term thinking. And There is a critique of deliberation, which is that the particular form of deliberation, the way in which it's structured, the listening to every side, it favours a particular way of thinking about the world, which is broadly speaking on the kind of progressive wing. So that here's the kind of problem, which is on the one hand, we're wanting to say, well, this is about process. This is not about trying to reach particular political conclusions. On the other hand, we're wanting... Also, I think Graham to argue that deliberation will actually lead to better <laughs> political decisions. Can you unravel that a bit for us?:
2: Yeah, I think it's really difficult, particularly when many advocates of deliberative processes are are also advocates of particular outcomes. and I think in the end, there is a commitment with these kinds of deliberative processes to a particular form of politics, and it's fair to say that that itself is a political battle about whether that is the right format and so myself yourself and claudia have a strong commitment to saying we think a politics which is embedded in diversity which ensures that a diverse group of participants are brought together who reflect the wider population and then are given space to deliberate to learn about the issue and to learn what each other think about the issue and to actually come to recommendations together is worthy of support in its own right. But it is the case that there are people who say that's not how they want to see politics progress. And those are people are very often people who don't really want their the people who they represent to be part of a process, or actually, if you like, trying to act as a particular interest within society as a block. And I think we have to accept that you know, deliberation is a political commitment. In the book, I want to make the argument that this is a set of political conditions which help us to think long-term. And it's because of that diversity, because it allows us a diverse range of perspectives on what the interests of future generations will be. So it's not just a kind of articulation from a particular political class. But actually, deliberation encourages what social psychologists call slow thinking. It It, it encourages learning and respect for the perspectives of others and internalizing the interests of others in our decision making. And it's really difficult to defend short-term self-interest in that public deliberation. I think there's a couple of German philosophers who say that deliberation is fact regarding, other regarding, and future regarding. And so there's something about deliberation. And finally, these bodies, because they are independent, random selection ensures independence from electoral cycles and from incumbent interests. That actually means that they're kind of free to think about the interests of the long term of interests of future generations in a funny kind of way. That's why the ancient Athenians used random selection to protect their decision makers from incumbent interests. So it's this really interesting combination. I think in the end, Matthew, this is actually a commitment to a particular way of doing politics. And we shouldn't shy away from that. So there is a there is a politics behind why we think deliberation is a good idea. And it's incumbent on us to make the case and to and to try and make that case for saying, and this is a good way of doing things. And I don't think you're going to find that we can't offer a neutral uh, account of that.
0: So, Claudia, how do you deal with this issue as you evangelise around the world for the greater use of deliberation? I mean, I tend to agree with Graham. I, I don't think there's any point hiding the fact that There are certain broad outcomes that seem often to emerge from deliberation. It is, as Graham said, better at thinking about the long term very often. It does seem to involve citizens going through a process where they become more aware of other people's perspectives and other people's positions and therefore more able to reach uh, consensus. More specifically, I've often said that you know if you do a citizen's jury that's around criminal justice, people will go in as Daily Mail readers and emerge as Guardian readers because it just gets them to think more deeply about the kind of social causes of criminality and the deeper interventions you need to make to tackle it. But then again, there is also something which would be more reassuring possibly to people on the centre or centre-right, which is that people often go into these processes, I find, blaming the government for everything. And I'm more inclined by the end to recognise that actually it's about citizens and citizens' behaviour and what citizens are willing to support and and that blaming the government is not quite right or expecting the government to solve every problem is not quite right. But how do you deal with this? How do you deal with the balance of saying, well, deliberative democracy is all about citizens reaching the decisions themselves and we don't want to control that and recognising that we know now that deliberation tends to lead to particular ways of thinking about the world?
1: Yeah, I think this is one of those questions and and kind of tensions that comes up quite a bit. I broadly agree with both of you, but I also... I'm reticent of, of wanting to make it seem as though only a certain type of politician gets behind or initiates these initiatives. Because I mean, as I stressed, actually, with the example in Ostbelgien, the German speaking community in Belgium, it was actually across party lines that the parliamentarians unanimously from all parties voted to put in place this new institution of the Citizens Council. And there are numerous examples across the world of also conservative and right leaning politicians initiating these processes. So I don't also, want to end up giving the impression that this is also something that's some sort of left-wing partisan initiative. In terms of the sorts of outcomes that come out of it, I think I probably generally agree with you that they've or maybe sometimes of a more progressive nature. But I think it's also sometimes hard to categorise them. And at least as far as I know, I don't know if, Graham, you, you know of other research, I haven't actually seen any any concrete analysis of the types of recommendations that result from citizens' assemblies and juries and other deliberative processes to have a sense of, of whether there's some sort of political leaning or not. But I think what you were saying towards the end of your comments there, Matthew, about, you know, at least these kind of processes, they really... Do you give? People, the space to grapple with complexity. So I think one of the outcomes is definitely a, a much greater <laughs> appreciation and understanding of how hard the job of politicians is to try and find compromise, to try and consider so many different trade-offs, whether also, you know, budgetary constraints, other other legal or institutional constraints that might be at play and other things. So there's definitely some empathy gained, I think, in both directions when these processes take place, because I think the politicians, even if they're skeptic, at the beginning, I think they also, if they've come to observe the process in particular, come out with a huge renewed level of respect for the competency of quote unquote ordinary people to be able to really deliberate on complex policy issues. So it's it's a mutual respect and trust gained in both directions.
0: Yeah, and I completely agree with that. I mean, I think that one of the ways in which mainstream politicians actually created a path for the rise of populism is that mainstream politicians tend to feel that they need to say when they have a policy, this policy is bound to work and this policy has no downsides. And in reality, I speak as somebody who used to work in Downing Street. There is no policy that is certain to work, and there are no policies that don't involve some downside, some risks, some trade-offs. But it becomes very difficult to say that because of the nature of the media public skepticism. What deliberation allows politicians to do is to be in spaces where they can recognize risks, they can recognize trade-offs, and citizens recognize that and are fully at home with recognizing that. Now I'm going to ask you both a final question, which is that we've used this word participation quite a lot in this conversation. But I think one of the things that the advocates of deliberation want to argue is that you don't need to have massive participation to re-legitimize democracy. That the whole point about deliberation is that you can have a relatively small number of people, but as long as this is a representative group It can re-legitimize decision-making because the public view this group, not professional politicians, broadly representative, not just demographically representative, but representative of a range of opinions. And in just the same way, as most of us tend to assume when a jury reaches an outcome in a criminal trial, that we would have reached the same conclusion ourselves had we heard the same evidence, that the way deliberation works is that we end up saying, okay, I mean, I wasn't involved in this process, but if that's what people like me decided, well, that's probably what I would have decided as well. Now, for some people, this is a kind of halfway house because what they really think we need to do is to have mass participation in democracy. The democracy won't work unless it's much more part of people's everyday lives. So, Graham, starting with you, what's your view on this? Is deliberation in a way a way of us getting a better democracy without most of us having to get off our arses? <laughs> or do you see it as part of a kind of broader participative programme? This reminds
2: me of that quote about socialism is a great idea, but it takes up too many evenings. It's like that kind of thing. So for me, it's not an either or, actually. I think that this things like citizens' assemblies are a great way of bringing everyday people into strategic decision making and it's really difficult to imagine how that can be done in a participatory politics in a complex society like us you know in terms of mass participation so for those kind of strategic level decisions but that doesn't mean that actually in terms of our everyday politics we can't be more participatory so I'm also an advocate of much more workplace democracy much more democracy within universities I'm a big fan of participatory budgeting So for me, this is very much a question of we've got these big strategic issues, long-term issues, where there is good reason to think that bringing in a diversity of perspectives and enabling deliberation will help us make better decisions. But that doesn't mean that we can't also think about a broader participatory politics. I don't see the two things in tension. I see them utterly complementary, in a complementary fashion. And I think there is a real danger here of, of people saying, oh, it's either deliberative processes like this or it's participatory democracy. Um, I don't buy that.
0: Claudia?
1: Yeah, I mean, I generally agree with Graham. And it's also why even kind of in my definition of deliberative democracy, I try to stress that it's something that I think is complementary to participatory democracy and and participatory initiatives, which I think people are perhaps a bit more familiar with. I mean, I do share the view that I don't think everybody wants to nor needs to participate in everything all the time, but it's about creating those spaces and opportunities for people to be able to maybe once once in their lives play this much more meaningful and engaged role, perhaps giving up numerous months of their time in a deliberative process and knowing that it's other people like them who are involved on other issues. And I think that we're starting to see some growing kind of awareness and understanding of deliberative democracy amongst the wider public. In quite recent times, I mean, in the OECD report that we published last year about the deliberative wave, we have over 300 examples, some of them dating to the 80s. But I think it's only been really in the past five to 10 years that we've seen this move to deliberative democracy having a lot more prominence and some of the most recent polling that we've seen just two or three weeks ago, SevePuff published polling from France, the UK, Germany and Italy, which actually showed that there's been a move in the public sense of whether these processes should even be advisory or binding with a majority in in all countries, 63% of people thinking that if there's a citizens assembly that gets initiated by a public authority, its recommendations should be binding which I think is a testament to the sense of trust that people place in other citizens like them participating in such processes. And the polling also showed that around a third of people really think that deliberative democracy needs to become a systematic complement to Parliament's work. So I think as There's more and more discussion about deliberative democracy, and people come to understand it and realize how it also complements representative democracy, how it works with other participatory initiatives. Then we'll have a broader societal shift of how this fits within our broader sense of what is democracy and how do we want the future of democracy to even look like.
0: Well, that's a wonderful note to end on. I believe very strongly that we underestimate the role of our rather creaking representative democratic institutions in many of the problems that we have in the modern world, whether it's uh, inequality or not tackling climate change, or or forms of social polarization. And therefore, that evidence that you gave there, Claudia, of of a really important shift towards more deliberative methods, and that as a route into relegitimizing and renewing our democracy, I really think that's a source of hope. So look, we're committed on this conversation to political pluralism, to pluralism of all kinds. Eagle-eared listeners, can you say eagle-eared? I don't know. We'll have noticed that it's not clear whether it's Graham or Graham or whether it's Claudia or Claudia, but we'll leave it like that because... That's just another example of our pluralism. Graham's book, Can Democracy Safeguard the Future? I can strongly recommend it. It's short, punchy and powerful. Lots of great examples. Claudia, Claudia, where do we need to go to find out more about the OECD program that you're leading?
1: Yes. So to find out more, you can go to oe.cd slash delib wave, or you can just Google the OECD deliberative wave. And I think it comes up uh, right at the top there.
0: Well, I've enjoyed surfing the deliberative ways with the two of you. Thank you both very much. Thank you, Matthew.
1: Thank you, Matthew.
0: That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. We'll be back soon with more insights and analysis. But if you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review it in your podcast app. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor. This was a Tempo and Talker production for the RSA.
1: We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit the rsa.org/approach to find out how, and let's make change happen.